Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. We are joined today by Christopher Rufo, who is the author of the new book, America's Cultural Revolution, how the radical left conquered everything. And I know that a ton of our readers, uh, a ton of my listeners, I should say, will be very excited to hear that the left has conquered everything. <laughs> so congratulations to us. But Christopher, just- Well done, it, chaps. Yep, well done. There you go. Not, nothing, nothing to it. Uh, we'll teach you how we did it. For people who don't know, Chris is a conservative activist. Barry Weiss, in fact, on the back of this book, calls him the most important and effective conservative activist in the country, The Atlantic calls him one of the most gifted conservative polemicists of his generation. Uh, we got the New York Times on here calling him the country's preeminent critic of critical race theory. Uh, but you also have a bit of an unusual backstory. It's not like you kind of came out of college and got a Koch fellowship and then you know worked in the for a House Republican and have been an operative ever since. You kind of had a winding path here. So I think a lot of our readers probably, or listeners probably understand, know, know you as like the guy who made critical race theory a household name, the guy who's like really gotten like drag queen story hour into the news over the last couple of years. Yeah. But who are you before that? How'd you wind up in this place? Yeah, before that, I was probably a more typical, uh, you know, kind of intercept listener type. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, you know, I was on the, on the hard left uh, growing up in my teenage years. I come from a long family of, of Italian communists. So my aunts and uncles in, in Italy are still, you know, card-carrying, unreconstructed communists to this day. Some of my formative political memories are visiting my family and then seeing my aunt, uh, one of my, my favorite aunt, actually, still my favorite aunt, her complete collection of the works of Lenin. Totally unironically, I mean, really, truly, um, you know, the, the Lenin, and they gifted me the Che Guevara flags as a kid. and. So that was kind of my formative political thinking. You know, a, a lefty friend of mine that read your book said he feels like a right-wing Gramsci. <laughs> Were you kind of brought up around Gramscian thinking? Yeah, very, very, very much so, and actually very directly, not even just you know, uh, derivatively. So my father was born and raised in a small town in Italy called San Donato Val di Camino. And so I used to grow up going back into the town in, in long summers and I spent a year there when I took, took some time off of college. And, uh, you know, I've spent years and years there, you know, collectively over the, my lifetime. And in the main town square for um, a number of years, well, the last time I was there, um, just after COVID, it had closed down, was the, the Antonio Gramsci Cultural Center. So it was, uh, you mm -hmm. know, it's a very left-wing town. And my grandmother used to tell the story of uh, the fascists were running uh, after World War II. They were seeking votes and they were giving out blankets. They were giving essentially, you know, material goods to, to bribe people. And then uh, the organizer, the party organizer came, came after the elections and said, ah, oh, no, you know, you didn't vote for us. You said you'd vote for us after we gave you all this stuff. And she says, what do you mean? I voted for you. She said, no. He said, no, we didn't get one single vote in this entire town. So I know for sure you did not vote for us, you know. You, 
And she was embarrassed and she was mad. She would tell that story. She was, she was mad at everyone else. She was like, at least one person should have voted for them to save me the embarrassment, you know. So yeah, so I, I think it's possible and maybe your friend who read the book sensed it a little bit. And I think in, in a way, it's part of the way I've been able to kind of flummox some of my critics and some of my opponents. In a lot of ways, I know their own language better than they do. And so I bring a different sensibility. And I think that even readers on the left that would disagree with me or obviously not reach the same conclusions, I think could appreciate the text because it's not the, the kind of condescending, uh, it's not the, you know, look at all these awful people, conservative, you know, polemical book. I've read, you know, a ton of those books over the years. I don't like them either. I just think that they do a total disservice. They underestimate what's happening. And so it's a different feel and, and, and I have a different experience than, yeah, most of the college Republican to, to RNC pipeline kind of kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think you you do treat these kind of left-wing uh, authors and thinkers that you write about with more care than, than, a, than in, a, in a typical kind of RNC pipeline type produced book. But before we get to the flummox thing, I do want to ask you, like, well, what happened? Like, where did where did you go wrong? How, how did you go from the path of light to the one that you're on? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I'll take that comment ironically. And, uh, and I'll say that um, a couple things. One is that I, I went to, to Georgetown. That was my top pick. I wanted to go to Georgetown to get involved in politics. That's, that's where I felt like the, the energy was. I was, you know, a California public school kid. And so I land in Georgetown and I got involved and got organized. I, I, you know, joined the, at the time, you know, the, the, the marches against the Iraq war, which I still feel like was uh, the, the right decision, the right position on my, on my part. Mm-hmm. But the more I got involved with the organized left, the campus left, institutional left, I just had, had such a process of disillusionment. And I felt as if the people who were working on this project were totally inauthentic in the sense that they were the sons and daughters of America's elites. They were pushing a left-wing ideological or intellectual line. But really, it was kind of always an attempt to bolster their own status and position and actually offered very little for people whom they were claiming to be helping. And so it felt very phony. It felt very self-serving. And having entered that period of my life as a kind of political radical, I was disgusted by it. In a kind of sense, the, the, I don't know how you would term it. You would know better. You lived in, in, in D.C. area now. But mm-hmm. it's the folks who, who kind of land at Georgetown. They come from their nice fancy boarding school. They're wearing sure. their pink uh, shorts, you know, uh, and, the, and, and the popped collars. And they're going to get the jobs. Eventually, after they go through their, you know, their, their fun phase in college, they're going to be investment bankers and senior advisors to, to, their, to their dad's you know, office. And I, I just said, this is not a, an actual left that has any claim on authenticity, any claim on actual care for what they say that they are caring for. And so I, I just took off. I took off and I, I became a documentary filmmaker. I traveled around the world and at first, tried to get away from politics altogether. I totally understand that sentiment. Like, there is, for sure, an element of the left that is inauthentic in that way, that sees kind of leftism as social branding, and then ends up kind of weaponizing it in defense, ironically, of the very privilege that they come from, but they say that they are kind of <laughs> yeah. fighting against. That is, there's no question about yeah. that. I've seen plenty of that. And I think that 
people who have you know the most intimate experience with the deepest and most grassroots elements of the left sometimes come away from it and recoil like i've always wondered if kirsten cinema because she was so deeply involved with the left that's partly why she hates the left so much like she might have much a- less animosity for the left if she had just come up through the typical kind of democratic pipeline um, and might just be a normal center left instead she's, why, why what is her background i'm not aware she was a grassroots organizer type she was black block she was code pink was she really she was you know anarchist protesting the 2004 no democratic national convention yeah yeah she was a she was a serious radical for okay. several years and was a Green Party member huh. for a while. And then she's just been on the grease skids from, from left to right yeah. kind of ever, ever since then. Yeah. But so that's one response to it. The other response is, screw this. I'm getting out of politics. I'm going to do documentary filmmaking. The other response is somebody like me who says, I think this element of the left is wrong and I'm going to argue with them, and, but I'm going to stay positioned over here on the left until I'm just completely beaten down and driven out. <laughs> But then how did you go from, yeah. okay, I'm in documentary filmmaking, I'm out of politics, to being not just somebody with kind of conservative sensibilities, but like an actual like on the team conservative activist? Yeah, that's an interesting institutional shift for sure. So it happened gradually and then suddenly. And so I was making films around the world. I, I directed documentaries for PBS. I sold a film to Netflix. I did some international television projects. Um, it traveled all over. And, and simultaneously, as I was working and doing that, I was reading a lot, just kind of feeding my, my, my appetite for, for reading and learning and studying. And I still had the passion for politics. I think when you have a love for politics, it really, can't, it really never leaves you. There's something that grips you and won't let you go. And so it turned into this kind of invisible and silent uh, period of, of study. And as I was reading all of these books, I started reading some conservative books. They started making more sense to me. And then I was always comparing my experience on the ground, whether it was in Europe or Asia or Africa or Latin America or the United States, was always comparing my observations on the ground to what I was reading. And the conservative philosophy and then my ground-level observations started to really move very closely together. And it seemed as if they were um, uh, more accurate reflections of one another. And then I decided that I wanted to shift my filmmaking practice a little bit. I had a you know, kind of a rough patch in my mid to late 20s, very difficult. You know, the filmmaking business is, documentary business is brutal. Um, I was kind of getting, getting tired of it, getting a bit burned out. And so I said, oh, you know, I'm going to make a film on um, social and political issues. And so I, I directed this film called America Lost. And I highlighted and spent really three years of production in three of America's poorest cities, conducting interviews, talking to experts in the communities, flying all around the country, interviewing some of the top scholars, left, right, and center on these issues, and and, and burrowing into uh, the lives of these families in these extremely distressed cities, Youngstown, Ohio, Memphis, Tennessee, and Stockton, California. So a, a kind of predominantly white working class or white formerly working class industrial city in the north. Memphis, obviously, it's, the, it's kind of the, the tip of the Mississippi Delta, you know, kind of black inner city community, and then Stockton, which is Latino, multiracial, kind of out west. And so I had this, this incredible education, talking to scholars, reading, you know, dozens and dozens of books, spending years on the ground, and um, 
the process of making that film convinced me of the, the accuracy, the correctness, and the utility of these conservative scholars and thinkers. And then what happened is I'm in, a, I'm in a pickle, right? So I'm in a pickle because the documentary world is very far left. I mean, it is a left-wing cultural you know, uh, uh, institution that, is, that is, has one set of priorities and that's it. All of the, it's a small business, so there's a lot of people that are hungry for the grants and film festival slots and fellowships and broadcast deals. And so as people were whispering that, that Rufo has kind of you know, gone rogue politically, I just lost all of my business, my documentary business. PBS ended up airing the film after kind of delaying and fighting with me for a, a number of months. But it was very clear that that was going to be my last documentary. And so I was, I don't know, 30, early 30s, uh, you know, married, child. My career is kind of uh, winding down in the documentary world. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to try to see if there's other opportunities to get back into politics full circle. And I applied for a Claremont Fellowship just out of the blue, not even really being extremely familiar with Claremont Institute. And uh, I got a call from the president, Ryan Williams, and he says, hey, we, we... we're interested. You're a very unconventional candidate for a fellowship. You don't have any track record in conservative politics. And I'm going to be very frank. You seem like a plant. I need you to look me in the eye and promise me <laughs> th- th- that you're not going to do kind of a James O'Keefe style <laughs> send up of Claremont Institute. You know? yeah. And I laughed. And I said, oh, man, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. And, and that actually happened to me a number of times. I got accused of being a plant probably two or three times as I was first getting into it. And uh, which is funny now. And then um, I was really embraced and welcomed into this world and made great friends and had opportunities, you know, kind of uh, provided to me. I had some great mentors. George Gilder was an early mentor and Bruce Chapman and really supported what I was doing and, and helped me open up this new field of work that I've been just so rewarding. And so now it's kind of odd. I identify, you know, I tell people, hey, I'm conservative activist. I'm fine with that. That label doesn't bother me. But um, it's not exactly the whole the whole truth either. Whatever the my image might be in in some of the press, um, yeah, it's not. It's a little more complex than that. So, in, in hearing that story, the place where I would think that you went wrong is this. So, tell me, you go to Stockton, you go to Memphis, you go to Youngstown, and in these places that are blighted, and you're seeing that they're having a hard time turning themselves around because of kind of the collapse of cultural values in these in these areas, and you're seeing that the conservative movement is the one that's taking that seriously and is willing to address that, whereas liberals are just kind of looking the other way and offering some you know, small amount of subsidies for people and, t- and just hoping that they get back on their feet. But what you're also seeing is the result of neoliberalism, of deindustrialization, of the, of the breaking of unions, of the offshoring of jobs and the collapse of the economic base that allowed for the cultural strength that had kept those cities together before. And so you then kind of paradoxically wind up aligning with the right, which really fueled, and it was it was a bipartisan effort, but the right is really driving this kind of Milton Friedman style neoliberalism that is gutting these communities. And so it would be sort of like arriving at the scene of you know an Ebola outbreak in West Africa and seeing the hospitals and blaming the hospitals for how bad they are, <laughs> rather than saying, well, what happened before that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting point of view, and there's some places with 
with which I agree, some, some things uh, with which I disagree. But I mean, I took that question very seriously. I actually spent most of my time thinking about that exact question. And so you're left with this idea where let's trace the process of decline. And, and the story that you're telling, I think there's a lot of truth to it in the sense that the floodgates of free trade were open, these industries were no longer competitive. But actually, when you scrutinize it, it doesn't hold up as well as you would think. And for a couple reasons. One is that you know, I talked to a lot of these guys who were longtime Youngstown people, political observers, again, left, right, and center, actually mostly left in Youngstown, you know, old timers that worked in the industry. And the story that they told when you really pick it apart is something actually very different. The problem in Youngstown was in a sense that it was gifted this, this really rare and one-time position after World War II. Europe was devastated, Japan was devastated, China was still a kind of backwards economy. There was no industrial base in the entire world. Africa and Latin America had, had virtually nothing. Uh, the United States was the only industrial country, more or less, after, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, especially in the non-Soviet sphere. And so we had a virtual monopoly over industrial production and for Youngstown, steel production. We were producing steel for the whole planet, but that was never going to last forever. The Europeans started building factories, and then the Japanese started building factories. And the Japanese factories, for example, and they lost a lot of business to these Japanese factories, wasn't necessarily because of trade liberalization, although that certainly, you know, you could have had more protectionist measures. It was a, a large part because the Japanese were building their steel industry from scratch in the 50s and 60s, you know, really taking off in the 1960s, getting government support, using really advanced, modern Japanese engineering and production techniques. And then by the 70s, these brand new, incredible Japanese steel factories are competing against these steel mills that were built, you know, 70, 80 years ago, that they weren't running very well, they weren't efficient, they weren't cost effective. And then you have this global competition that is entering after the World War II, recovery from World War II. And then domestically, the story that they tell is also a little more complicated. You had extreme mafia activity that was smothering and really harming the steel industry in places like Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Youngstown in the middle. And at first they actually started losing business to the bigger cities in the United States. And then it was the mafia, the unions were also an immense drag on their productivity. Plus all of this new competition from new factories overseas. The story that people tell when, when they're kind of honing in on the honesty is yes, the free trade, especially in 1999, 2000, was the final blow. I mean, then the, the industry is done. But the industry was doomed decades earlier than that. And we were living off of kind of the capital accumulation. We were living off the, you know, the heyday. But we had significant problems that could not be resolved domestically and locally, really as soon as the kind of recovery from world, the global recovery from World War II. Although you also have, at the time, a revolution in tax policy going on, the biggest marginal tax rates being brought down. And even as you have productivity continuing to increase throughout you know, the 80s and 90s, despite everything you're saying, because I think that's true. Like America was in this uh, unique place of being the only one that wasn't you know, completely destroyed by World War II. But you do have a situation where the economy is still moving along, but all of the gains all of a sudden are now, instead of being spread around, are flowing up to the top, which I think produces its own cultural rot, no? 
I mean, in in a sense, you could maybe make that argument, but I would say that the you know the standard of living for the median income household is still rising during that period. Yes, you have a more winner winner take all economy, but I don't think that's actually due to tax policy so much. It's it's due to the kind of the nature of post industrial and then especially high tech industries that are not capital intensive. They're not resource intensive, and they are this kind of technological, creative, and kind of venture-backed industries that are winner-take-all, and they have global markets, you know, without, sometimes not China, et cetera, but, but more or less they have a global markets. And so Tyler Cowen has written about this, and, and his idea is that, you know, we've transitioned to a winner-take-all economy. And, and yes, I mean, would, would I agree that that is, you know, in some senses not ideal? Does it create antagonisms and resentments? But I don't think that it is the case. The old Margaret Thatcher line is still somewhat true, even though I'm a, you know, a critic of, of, of Thatcherism and Reaganism. But the old the Margaret Thatcherism is true. Yes, the income for the top 1% has gone up, but the income for the median family has also gone up, if not in an identical proportion. And so she asked very famously in a question time session, would you rather have everyone be poorer so that there's more equality or everyone be wealthier, but having you know, larger inequality at the top end. And my view is that these are all trade-offs. There's no perfect uh, system, but I would rather have, given the winner-take-all economy, I'd rather have everyone be better off. And so the paradox that you see in Youngstown and in, in Stockton and Memphis is, is actually the, the poorest people have a remarkable material standard of living. I mean, remarkable. The poorest people in Youngstown have, you know, larger houses, more cars, better appliances, and more disposable income than middle-class people in Europe, for example, and certainly middle-class people in in any of the developing uh, world. And so it isn't simply the case that it is, you know, Great Depression-style poverty. It's actually a very bizarre confluence of uh, contradiction, really. It's that this is kind of material uh, abundance relative to historical standards and relative to, to even peer countries. But it is a poverty that is immiserating and devastating and horrifying in a sense beyond the Great Depression. You know, I talked to my grandfather about the Great Depression and it was awful. I mean, you know, like your, your ribs are sticking out. You don't have, you, you know, you're, you're running low on basic necessities. But in a sense, I would rather be in that condition under the, under the cultural arrangements and beliefs and patterns than being poor in Youngstown today, even if you have a, you know, an old Cadillac and a 2,000-square-foot house and spending money. I mean, talking to guys like uh, I talked to one guy and his mother, and he was back in prison, and, a, and a, another prisoner had sliced open his genitals and put a domino inside of it for some weird prison ritual. I mean, it's like the stuff happening today in the underclass in places like Youngstown is so horrifying that I think that it's, in some ways you look at it and you have to analyze it separate from a material analysis because materially you actually have abundance in any kind of historical context. Relative to the Great Depression, right, for sure. No, I mean, relative, no, rel- relative even to their, even, even to two generations prior, relative to 1950. That's the irony. Is the Youngstown was, you know, the, one of the wealthiest cities in the world in 1950, but even adjusted for inflation, the per capita or, you know, household income among poor Youngstowners is still higher than it was um, among middle class 
families in, in 1950. And so, and, and yes, of course, everywhere else it's, it's gone up much more, obviously. But you can't simply say that this is a kind of dust bowl tragedy. That is an unselfconscious poverty. Um, it's a poverty where there was still a, a sense of nobility of spirit. The poverty in Youngstown is this very, I mean, just devastating poverty in which people have all the material preconditions for human happiness, but are racked with addiction, overdoses, prostitution, mental illness, anxiety and depression, family atomization. If you really spend time, I think that you can't simply say, well, if we got, if we got the old steel mill fired back up, everything would be fine. We're beyond the point of no return on that kind of solution. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And so I didn't mean to go this long without talking about the book, so let me get into that. <laughs> Good, yeah, sure. So how, how does Herbert Marcuse kind of fit into this? And give people a, a kind of quick thumbnail sketch of what the argument you're making in this book is. And, and I said on the show, and I'll say it again, like, I think it's a, I think it's a well-written, well-researched, kind of well-crafted book. You know, I, I obviously disagree with its conclusion. I, we, we've talked about and can talk more about why I think some of it is nihilistic while kind of talking about the nihilism on the left. It has some of its own, but very well done project overall. But so why is Herbert Marcuse kind of relevant here? The main narrative arc of the book, it, it tells the story of the, the, the so-called long march through the institutions. So this was the, the strategy adopted by the radical left theorists and activists in the, that moved from the period of uh, excitement in the late 1960s to a period of disillusionment in the early 1970s. And they concluded that their kind of violent, Marxist-Leninist revolution against the state had failed. It had been disrupted by Nixon, by J. Edgar Hoover. It had turned public opinion against them. Even the New York Times op-ed page had, had really started just kind of violently attacking or rather strenuously attacking the radical left at the time. And so they said the, the way forward for the left is to burrow within the established institutions to bring our ideology in from the outside and then slowly start to conquer these institutions from within and, and bring our ideas, bring our theories, bring our, our, our values and principles into them. And so I trace the origins, the book begins in 1968, to the conclusion, which is the, the summer of 2020. The story is really how these fringe and radical ideas of the left wing at the time with Marcuse, Angela Davis, Paulo Freire, and then a little bit later, Derek Bell, 
were outsider ideas that then became the conventional wisdom of all of America's cultural institutions. Not to say that the radical left, as you, as you were joking in the beginning, well, we conquered everything, great, we won. Of course, that's not true, but the, the subtitle, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything, must be read in light of the title, America's Cultural Revolution. And the cultural revolution is the left's lowering of ambitions in some ways. Well, we don't want to you know, take over the steel mills in Youngstown, but we do want to take over the HR department at the, uh, the you know, Steel Corp USA and then bring our ideas there with the hopes that it could soften the grounds culturally for an eventual total revolution or economic revolution. And so I really just trace the history of ideas. I tell the story of some of the key personalities. And then the argument is all implicit. And some of my left-wing critics have said, you're not making an argument. You're not making a logical case. And I kind of laughed at, at that critique because it's like, I mean, yes, this is a kind of narrative nonfiction. The argument is implicit in the story and how I'm telling the story, um, which I think is probably more, makes it more palatable to an audience you know, except for like analytical egghead types that might, uh, might be looking for the, uh, the logical proof uh, in all of these things. Yeah. To me, the hole in it comes, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but just to go over it again real quickly, like, let me read one piece from your book here. You write, the new left's language of subversion, which was authentically transgressive at its point of origin, has created its own conformist and corrupted universe of political language, unquote. It was hardened into the new, quote, armor of the establishment defending the left-wing orthodoxy of the new elite while exempting itself from the radical criticism of its own concepts, language, and power. And you talk elsewhere in the book about how you know, corporations you know, opportunistically use DEI and, these, and CRT and you know, public statements of, of allegiance to whatever cause to get themselves out of having to do anything you know, of substance about those issues to kind of let off some of that steam. But so rather than a kind of success rather than the left conquering everything that to me feels like the durability of capitalism and the capitalist class that just evidence of of their ability to take challenges to them and, and adapt them in ways that leave the status quo in place much more than it's evidence of a kind of successful marxist revolution why should the left be satisfied with corporations adopting their language if nothing fundamentally has changed about the power structure yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree with your analysis. And I think in the kind of penultimate chapter, that's really where the story ends. And um, it is this very interesting, and I'm, certainly I'm not suggesting that, you know, Fortune 100 companies have DEI, therefore this is, you know, communism. And you get some right-wing commentators that are saying, you know, these are all communist co company. I mean, that's ridiculous. That is a total overdrawn conclusion. I, I, don't, I don't make that at all. But the book to me ends maybe in an actual, uh, uh, this contradiction that you would, I, I imagine you would agree with, is that because it's America's cultural revolution, the radical left conquered everything in the sense that it has conquered the cultural language, symbolism, and principles in that sense, in that cultural sense. So that every corporation is, you know, pledging loyalty to BLM. You know, you have DEI in, in every company in, in the United States. Um, you have affirmative action policies that openly discriminated against uh, disfavored groups according to the intersectional hierarchy. You have all of these cultural practices, and yet the basic economic function of these corporations is relatively undisturbed, let's say. They're still highly profitable. They're still very innovative. They still uh, control the commanding heights of the economy. Thank God, from my perspective. 
so what, what, what you have and the, why I think the story of America's cultural revolution is so interesting is that you have to revive some classic Marxist terminology. The, the radical left has conquered the superstructure. So it has conquered the means of ideological and knowledge production in the universities, in the K through 12 schools, in the HR departments, in the, in the uh, uh, federal bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. But it has not conquered and, and really has no ambition of conquering anymore the economic base. And so you have a revolution in part that has been completed, but cannot ultimately satisfy its Marxist ambitions. You have Marxism without Marx. There's a certain hollowness and emptiness. And so as I conclude with the critical race theorists, my point is critical race theorists have absolutely nothing to offer working class people of any racial background. They have absolutely nothing to offer poor inner city black communities like the one in Memphis, Tennessee, where I spent some time. And in fact, their revolution is a revolution that is wholly cynical and self-serving, just like the people that I met in, in, in college. It, they play the affirmative action game to gain prestigious academic positions. They play act as revolutionaries to burnish their credential at you know, dinner parties and, and lecture circuits and academic conferences. But ultimately, they are not revolutionaries. They are not courageous figures of the left. And in fact, when I, when I went after the critical race theorists by name and identified their discipline and just launched artillery shells at them rhetorically, they didn't even defend their own ideas. They denied that they were calling themselves Marxists in the 1990s. They ran away from that. And in fact, they denied that their, that their theories were even influential at all. And so, as I'm looking at the original theorists here, the Marcuses and Angela Davis and Paolo Freire, even Derek Bell to a lesser extent, I circle all the way back with a begrudging but real respect for them because they had an authenticity, they had a desire, they had an idealism that has really now just become kind of last man style status seeking. Revolution, but a cynical revolution that has no real ambitions. It's kind of a cheeky uh, title, but the the story as it unfolds, I think, should be very disillusioning uh, for the left, um, but also very concerning for the right. I think, in a sense, no one is happy, right? You have a partial revolution, and neither side is quite satisfied. So when it moves out of the academy and into pop culture, it becomes you know, much more dumbed down. And you're seeing, I think, a, a kind of dumbed down version of it playing out in Florida right now. You know, Ron DeSantis has been kind of the chief popularizer, I would say, and I think you would agree with that, of kind of your theories of cultural counter-revolution. Yes. And what's big in the news lately is his new curriculum that Florida rolled out uh, around African-American history. Sure. The thing that the media has really fixated on is this teachers are supposed to instruct kids that uh, slaves learn skills, you know, that some slaves learn some skills that they could potentially use in, in other aspects of their life. Setting that aside, I feel like that's better understood in the broader way that the curriculum approaches the history, which is it felt to me like some dorm room arguments I'd heard from conservatives back in college in the 90s. <laughs> like you hear things like, well, look, you know, they had slavery in Africa also. Sure, you know, sure, Before sure. they had, and then, well, look, actually slavery was worse in the Caribbean, which true, it was. And well, look, being a serf in Europe, that was really, really bad too. And like all of it coupled with the slaves learned some skills that they could use later, all of it brought together feels like saying, yes, obviously slavery was bad, but relatively speaking, maybe it wasn't as bad as people say. So like, is that where the kind of 
conservative embrace of CRT ends up going and, and why? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, you still hear those arguments today, right? You've heard them. Uh, I've heard them. And many of them are based in, I mean, facts, as, as you say. But I, I think they're ultimately And not- that's all in the curriculum. Like yeah. those things that I heard in the dorm room, like those are all of these things like, oh, there was slavery in Africa. It's all true, but it's like, yes. well, why? But, but I think that to take the point of, of this line that has caused controversy, and, and really I think you, know, you and I would both agree that the, the left-wing critique is that, that, oh, oh, DeSantis saying that slaves benefited from slavery. It's like, no, that's not what it means. And so what I think the point is, and, and this is actually has a, a long lineage in, in African-American, it's really the kind of Within American black philosophy and, and political theory and, and activism, there is a, str- a strand of thinking that says, you know, the solution, and, and Thomas Sowell, you know, you can bring it back to Booker T. Washington, but there is a strand of thinking that says, you know, the, the attitude that should be prioritized is one of resiliency, is one of hope, is one of uh, triumph over adversity. And yes, when you oversimplify it, it can be kind of a ridiculous Horatio Alger story. It can minimize um, some of the historical inequities, I mean, in truly, really and truly. But I think that th- that line was basically to say these people who suffered under unimaginable brutality and, and evil conditions were resilient, they had um, capacities, they had talents, and even though they were smothered and held back under the system of slavery, which was uh, evil and wrong. Um, they were able to emerge from those in, in, in immense difficulties and actually have, have uh, capacities that they could realize once slavery was over. And you know, I, I traveled in the Deep South as I was making the film, and one of the things that, that really um, shocked me and, and was really uh, quite inspiring was in the Mississippi Delta, there, was these free, there were these free cities that were all black, uh, small cities and towns that were established by freed slaves. They had um, uh, their, their own kind of thriving industries and economies and in, 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 in still some very difficult conditions. They had business people, they had civic leaders, they had, you can see the, all the whole old history. And I, and I talked to folks about the history of these places. And to me, that was a triumph of spirit and of ingenuity and of, and of resilience and in courage. And I think that you can't tell a story that is only that, right? You can't, you can't minimize what these people faced. Um, and we should confront it honestly and, 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 and totally. But also you should not minimize the, these accomplishments, which are not trivial by any measure and should not be, um, should not be covered over by, by people today who see them as an impediment to their own uh, you know, left-wing politics. I mean, I, I think that that's so... I mean, we should, we should be, you know, in the textbooks in place, like, like, like even in the Deep South, those stories should also be highlighted. I think those stories are, are, are quite uh, effective. And my opposition to, let's say, on these issues, right, race issues, my opposition to critical race theory, it's been, you know, hashed out. Anyone can go see my opposition. But for something kind of new, it's the, the, the opposition to, let's say, even something like a reparations or something like, uh, you know, affirmative action, stems from my observations in a place like Memphis, where I really saw the more that the government and the state seeks to engineer social outcomes and on these crude measures, actually the worse things get. For me, after that long observation, I just feel very skeptical that, that these social engineering projects 
Uh, you know, the government can do pretty good physical engineering. The New Deal taught us that. I mean, the, some of those bridges are, are still American landmarks. But social engineering is something quite different, and, and we've never been able to do it successfully. And so I'm quite skeptical uh, in that regard. If you're still helping with the curriculum, if they're still working on it, I'd suggest adding in something on Robert Smalls, adding in, or in general talking about slave uprisings and, and resistance to couple it with, okay, good that somebody became a blacksmith, but also talk about the kind of the way that there was constant effort to overthrow slavery, you know, from the enslaved yeah. people themselves, which I think is also... I, I, would, I would totally support that. I, I, I think that those stories are also very important. Picking up on DeSantis real quick, because I know you got to go soon, the fact that he is getting so rinsed in this Republican primary, you know, he had to reset his campaign. Uh, in 2022, Republicans really adopted a lot of this drag queen stuff, a lot of the CRT narrative, and instead Democrats picked up a seat in the Senate did better than expected in the house like there's a disconnect somewhere and i want to get your take on it my take on the disconnect i think there there's a lot in the culture wars that you guys could argue and have 80 percent support and everybody being with you for the most part except like the most extreme elements of somewhere on campus sure but you guys don't stop there and i think roe being overturned kind of laid bare the broader kind of cultural agenda at work here and so you wind up having you wind up going to the extreme so quickly and you have you know so many people in the mainstream of the Republican party just quickly calling democrats pedophiles that i feel like you kind of lose credibility and you guys s- start to seem like the ones that are obsessed with sex and bringing it into the culture war but i'm curious for your take as you looked back at 2022 and if and as you look at Ron DeSantis's campaign yeah why has there been so much success, say, in state legislatures and in dominating the cultural conversation, yet it's not translating electorally? Well, I would dispute that. I don't, I don't think that that is a, a fact. Which, you know, which Governor part? DeSantis won by just a handful of votes in 2018. I mean, really, truly, less than the 1%. Mm-hmm. And then he translated that into a 20-point blowout, winning all racial demographics, winning women by a huge margin, and even winning Miami-Dade County, the kind of urban county, the largest urban county in the state. And so DeSantis is is the example of taking these courageous positions, fighting very intelligently um, uh, uh, in in the media, and then translating that into electoral rewards. I mean, a huge shift in his favor. I think that if you look at the other congressional candidates and, and the congressional races. I think you're probably right. I think Roe had a drag on it. But I also think that President Trump, you know, the left made this all about Trump and then Trump obliged and said, yeah, let's make it about, uh, about President Trump. And I think that that was, obviously, was also a drag. But the, the governors that, that, that did quite well, even those who, who you know, banned CRT, who fought on some of these issues, and, and Governor DeWine and governors in uh, Georgia and other states, they also won big, 15-point victories or, or, or more. And so the primary question is, is, I think, actually the same phenomenon. I think that Republicans love DeSantis. If you ask Republicans, you know, they'll say he's the best governor. But Trump, again, is the dominant force in conservative politics. I mean, he, re- he, he really is, whether, whether you would like that to be the truth or not. And I think that the, the flagging support for DeSantis so far in the primary is really just a strong and loyal and passionate base of support for President Trump, much more than it's against, uh, you know, against DeSantis, which I don't think it is. 
And so that's the challenge. But even Trump, I mean, you know, Trump, you know, of course, made CRT a big issue. I worked with him on CRT. And then if you look at his video statements, the kind of policy, scripted policy statements that he's been doing, I mean, they're, you know, very kind of fire and brimstone, uh, you know, kind of cultural commentary. And so I, I think that if you look at it in this way, the top three candidates right now in the polling are Trump, DeSantis, and Ramaswamy. All of them are totally aligned with the kind of narrative and program that I outline in the book, and they have 90 plus percent of the market share. So I think the best way to look at it is actually the new right and the new kind of culture war right currently now has a 90 percent market share, and the Reaganite or neoliberal right um, has found itself, I think, hopefully, in a generational position where they're now being uh, shuffled out. Last question, then, because I know you got to go. I think in the general election, what you're going to wind up with, and I'm curious if you're taking this, is is a messenger problem. I mean, setting aside not just Speaker of the House, Denny Hastert, you know, who had his own pedophilia issues. You've got Donald Trump, who bought Miss Teen USA, and he'd saunter around the locker room and be gross. You know, uh, one of the one of the heroes on the right today is Andrew Tate, whose literal business model is grooming. Oh, it's horrible. No, I mean, he's that. I mean, if you go online, he's, everybody yeah. constantly defending the guy as, a, as this beacon. Of, That's horrible. That's such a mistake. I mean, I, I, I find him so disgusting. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that, that shouldn't be, and I'll, I'll work on it. I'll work on it, right. Finally, the yeah. Catholic Church, like every state that probes, you know, with, <laughs> whose attorney general probes, uh, the Catholic Church history finds just horrifying levels of abuse. And so when you see so much focus on one side, but not the other, it feels like a messenger issue. Like, how serious is this? So it, do you, you agree? Is there, is there, do Republicans have some cleaning up to do here? Of course. I mean, and, and obviously any, any kind of abuse should be condemned and, and rectified and prosecuted. So, and, and something like an Andrew Tate, I mean, Andrew Tate is not a hero or a model or should get any support from the right. Um, I think it's a reaction where, oh, an, oh the, the left hates Andrew Tate, therefore we, you know, conservatives like Andrew Tate. That kind of thinking is, 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 is a total disaster. And so I, 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 you'll find no, no support from me for anything like that. All right. Well, Christopher Rufo is the author of America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you. That was Christopher Rufo, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. The episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Go ahead and rate any episode that you want, even if you rated one already. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com or at ryan.grimm at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line, otherwise we might miss your message. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>